Are you looking for a chance to connect with other development professionals and learn the latest in fundraising best practices? If so, join us at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida for the 2022 Petrus Development Conference on June 13th through 15th. Connect with others from fundraising offices, both big and small, from dioceses, campus ministries, schools, parishes, apostolates, and more. Register today at PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. The first 10 people to register in the month of February will receive a $25 gift card to use at the Naples Grand Resort restaurants. Space is limited, so visit PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22 to reserve your spot today. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. Many people described her as the Italian Molly Brown, totally undeterred, unwavering, and unsinkable. She was one of the first prominent female archaeologists and epigraphists who dedicated her life studying and understanding ancient mysteries and events. An Italian, Molly Brown. Who are you talking about, Matt? None other than Margarita Garducci. Thanks a lot, guys, for introducing this amazing person in the story of the Apostle Project. Margarita Garducci is, I think that calling her the Italian unsinkable Molly Brown is kind of perfect. She just epitomizes this role of, I'm not really interested in all the stuff around it. I just want the truth. Uh, I have no agenda. I have no bias. Just give me the facts or give me the direction and I'm going to drive this train until I can figure out what the truth is. And so that's really what she does. So we ended last episode talking about who replaces Koss as the head of the excavation. Well, now you know, it's Margarita Garducci. So this is kind of shocking because I think everybody would think that Faru would be the next one in yeah. line. Yeah, and I get the impression that Farua thought the same thing. So Garducci is an expert in the field of epigraphy. So you're probably wondering what the heck epigraphy is, yeah, what right? Is, what is that? <laughs> yeah. So I think Ren is, uh, he's got this on lock. Definitely. So epigraphy is the study of inscriptions or epigraphs as writing. So it's basically the decoding of things like graphemes and hieroglyphs and their use according to the dates and the cultural context that in which they were you know, put wherever they are to help understand both what the writing is about and the people who did the writing. Mm. And so Guarducci established herself as an authority in this field by deciphering something called the Gortin Code, which is this huge wall full of uh, legal codes on the island of Crete. So one of my favorite authors is Dan Brown, and this is really starting to <laughs> favorite sound... Favorite author? Yeah, one of my favorite authors, yeah, is Dan Brown. Oh, wow. Hey. I just learned a lot about you, Matt. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just joking. So, but this reminds me of that, like the story behind that. You, Dan Brown could almost write a book about what she does for a living. Yes, she. this is pretty fascinating stuff. In order to be a epigraphist, you have to be like part archaeologist, right? Part digger. You have to be part detective. And you have to be really willing to 
go where the information leads you and figure out what these codes mean. Yeah, and I think your reference to the Da Vinci Code is pretty spot on. But that's how Garducci kind of establishes herself, is this work that she does in Greece and really becoming an authority on inscriptions and epigraphy. Now, one interesting note that Garducci is not Catholic at this time. We don't know if she had some earlier connection to Catholicism, but she's certainly not practicing. And so you got to wonder kind of how she gets this job. There's an interesting quote from that John O'Neill shared with us that George Strake was still advising on the project, right? He still knew Pope Paul VI, and Pope Paul VI family actually knew Garducci. And so Pope Paul may have actually gone to George and said, George, you know, I've got this problem. This person left. I need the best person for the job. And George Strake says, well, then you got to go find the best person, kind of like he did with Eastman. Remember when he had drilled a diagonal drill to solve that fire? It's kind of the same thing. You got to go find the right person, find the best person for the job. And Pope Paul probably was like, well, it's a woman and she's not a Catholic. (laughs) And Strake, you know, to his credit was probably, well, you got to get the right person. Doesn't matter if that's the right person. And so anyways, all of this kind of goes together to really almost kind of put Farua in, I mean, in my mind, you know, Farua gets a lot of grief, right? But in my mind, he kind of is in a no-win situation, right? Like he's been working on this project. He doesn't think he's been doing a, a bad job. He's been, you know, setting up to take the lead on it. And then, you know, somebody else is picked and it's not even somebody from the Vatican. It's not a man, which in his mind is, you know, kind of a big problem. And it's not a Catholic. And so, you know, does he fight it? And is he upset about it? Yeah, absolutely. But in some regard, like, (laughs) I'd almost be more shocked if he, like, welcomed her with open arms and, you know, says, hey, I'm glad to have a new boss. So, anyways. I wonder if there was a piece of it, too, that she came in and said he didn't find it, but he had thought himself, they're already found. Why Why are yeah. we bringing somebody else in now? Yeah. I've and, already found him. Right, exactly. I mean, that's a good point. He probably also feels a little threatened, though, that she's she's going to come in and, you know, say, you didn't get it right. Which, spoiler alert, that's what happens. First thing she does is she kind of shuts down all the digging that's going on and says, look, things have not been done correctly. Nothing's been cataloged. Photographs have not been taken. Everything that's in here, this all needs to either come out or be be assigned to, you know, if it's not movable, it needs to be put in the right place. And we need to get documentation about this because that wasn't really happening. Koss was trying to, but Farua was really just like laser focused on we got to find the bones and everything in his way was just insignificant in some ways. So everything slows down and then Garducci basically just starts cataloging and studying everything. And she also brings in somebody who's really important to the process, Professor Venerando Carinti of the University of Palermo, who is an expert in the field of anthropometry. You guys know what that is, right? I have no idea. (laughs) Okay. So it's a systematic measurement of the physical properties of the human body. So, you know, you probably think, all right, well, you know, what good is that? It's really important in the areas now of clothing design ergonomics, and even architecture. So how does the body work? How does the body fit together? What kind of bone structure do you need to support certain weight? Basically, like if you want somebody to look at bones and figure out what that body looked like with skin and muscle and fat on it, Carinti was kind of the dude to do it. 
So he comes in and he starts studying everything. And in 1956, at the request of Pope Pius XII, he starts looking at these bones that Ferua said are St. Peter's bones. Let's call these the red wall bones because that's what they were found in the red wall. Nobody's really happy, Ferua especially, with what Corinti finds. Essentially, he determines that it, this pile of bones was not St. Peter. The reason that he figures out it's not St. Peter is because it's actually the bones of four different individuals. It's two men in their 50s, it's a man in his 40s, and it's an elderly woman in her 70s. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, not great, and it all kind of falls apart that these are the right bones. We found the bones. Now, unfortunately, this is 1956. Unfortunately, just two years later, 1958, Pope Pius XII dies. And I think this is really tragic because like, he's been focused on this for essentially his entire papacy, and he dies not knowing that the work was complete. So the work does continue, though. Garducci's in charge. But at this point, she doesn't really have any strong allies, right? Like Father Carroll's dead. Koss died. McGuff is gone. Montini is now the Archbishop of Milan. Strake is still involved. He's still funding it, but he's in America and he comes over every two or three years. It's not really like she's got a lot of allies, but she's the Italian unsinkable Molly Brown. She just continues. She's going to keep focusing on the study regardless of who's helping her out. So that's 1958. In 1962, Garducci presents some other bones to Professor Correnti with the idea that maybe these are St. Peter. So why did she think these are the bones and what bones were they? So remember how Koss found this small pile of bones underneath in a little niche underneath a wall with a number of inscriptions? That's right. So Garducci, when she comes in, she kind of focuses in on that wall, which ultimately is called the graffiti wall because it's got a lot of inscriptions on it over the centuries. But there's an inscription on there that is really important to her, and it's after she figures out the code, right? Because it's not just written out in plain English or even plain Latin, but she figures out and it says, Peter is here. And immediately under that inscription on the ground is where these bones were found, where Koss finds them. And so Garducci takes these bones, gives them to Carinti, who's this expert on bones at this time, and says, can you study these and figure out if these are St. Peter's bones? And maybe just, can you study these and figure out whose they are? So that's what Carinti does. So he starts studying the bones, and, and this is in 1962. 1963, Montini, remember one of the three amigos, is elected Pope Paul VI. So now he's back in charge, or he's back you know, in the papacy. Garducci has that ally again. And then 1964, Carinti reveals the findings of his report, gives it to Garducci, and they share it with the Vatican. And I think that everybody's going to be pretty happy with this report. What did it say? Basically, in this report, Corinti confirms that the bones in the niche under the graffiti wall are the bones of St. Peter. So how could they possibly have determined that? Okay, so there's, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points of confirmation. All right? So first is the age of the bones. They know, they don't do carbon testing, but they look at some of the details around the bones, where they were found, which I'll reveal later, what they were wrapped in, and then where they were stored. They determined that these bones were undoubtedly from somebody who was born and died before 250 AD, which remember in, in the 300s is when 
they built the old St. Peter Basilica, right? So that's the first thing. Age of the bones, they know where they're from. Body type. Peter was known to have died in his 60s or his 70s, and he was a robust male, and that's what these bones check out to be. Remember, Carinti is the expert on this, like what kind of bones does it take for a certain body type? So he knows for sure that these are the bones from a 60 or 70-year-old male who was a robust man. Number three is they're missing their feet, and they know that they're missing their feet, and their feet are chopped off. Why is that important? Okay, so remember how St. Peter died? He was crucified? Well, how was he crucified? He was crucified upside down. Right. And whenever somebody was crucified upside down, the simplest way to get them off the cross was, what can you imagine? Just cut them off. Cut the feet off, yeah. right? So it was very common for, for people that were crucified upside down when they were buried to be missing their feet. And these bones indicated that the feet had been cut off. And so that's another indicator that this is St. Peter. The fourth is... St. John Lateran, which is another basilica in Rome. Tradition held from a long time ago that the skull of Peter and Paul were both buried under St. John Lateran in a tomb there. Well, around this time, they checked that tomb and they confirmed that the bones that were there were only from one male. Later, they confirmed that it was St. Paul, but that clue indicates that it's not St. Peter, right? Because if it's only one and that's not St. Peter then it can't be that St. Peter's skull was buried there. Interesting. So five is gold and purple cloth. And looking at the bones, they can identify that they've got this stain. And what the scientific tests reveal is that that stain actually came from being wrapped in purple and gold cloth, which you remember from the Romans, what did they use purple and gold for? Royalty, important people. Exactly. So that means that if the Christians found these bones, wrapped them in gold and purple cloth, it wasn't just an ordinary person. It wasn't an ordinary martyr. It had to have been somebody of significant importance and either royalty or nobility. So that's another clue. Six is location. These bones were originally buried in the dirt underneath the trophy of Gaius, which is where tradition held when they built the initial St. Peter's. The trophy of Gaius is this mausoleum tomb, and that's where tradition held that the St. Peter was initially buried. And the original tomb was marley sand, while other parts of the Vatican area were different. They were blue, clay, or yellow sand. Well, what kind of dirt remains do you think they found on these bone fragments? I'm going to just take a shot in the dark here and say it's marley sand. <laughs> Thank you. That's a huge leap. You remind me so much of George Strake, the Wildcatter. Like major risk going out on a limb. Yes, yes, yes. They were. Uh, they it was Marley Sand. So then they knew that these were originally under the trophy of Gaius. They were moved here, which then holds with tradition that that's where they were initially buried. Seven is that inscription. Peter is here. Garducci found that, and that's a pretty good indicator that somebody believed that they're there. And then the final confirmation, number eight, is that before this got published, they sent this report out to five different experts, three archaeologists and two specialists in Greek epigraphy, no relation to the project, no relation to the Vatican, and all five of them came back and said what? Confirmed. Confirmed, yes. So now you have your eight points in this 1964 report that they found the bones of St. Peter under the graffiti wall in the niche. Howdy, I'm Andrew, your friendly host of the award-winning Petrus Development Show, 
podcast where I interview great development officers and ministry leaders about how they raise more money for their organization. Subscribe to the Petrus Development Show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Ren, do you remember a couple years ago when we went on that snowshoe hike in the woods trying to figure out how to help more Catholic organizations raise more money? I do, Andrew. We had a great conversation about the need for churches and other nonprofit organizations to build new buildings, hire new staff, and increase their mission, but their need for a strong foundation of development skills. From that hike and that conversation came the idea for a manual for the annual fund, which is the fundamentals of development. From that conversation, we built the Petrus Annual Manual Program. It's crazy how just a couple of years later, we've helped dozens of nonprofit organizations just through a simple development calendar, guides and samples, and a weekly call with a consultant, raise more money and get a more solid footing for their development operations. It is great. You can learn about the Annual Manual yourself by visiting PetrusDevelopment.com slash Annual Manual. I've got a guess, and again, I'm I'm pulling a, a George Strake here and and uh, going out on a limb, yeah. and say that Ferrua was not very happy with this report that Garducci threw out there. Yes. So 1965, the report goes public, and as you would expect, Ferrua immediately begins attacking everything. There were some mouse bones found in the box that uh, the bones were stored in for many years in storage. And so they use that as as a claim that these are not the right bones because there were mice in there, which they were stored in storage for many, many years. It wasn't super secure. So a mouse climbed in there and died. He also he uses this line that Garducci is really just this super religious fanatic woman who lets her emotions take over and really doesn't use science to justify this and is really driven by this, which is totally insane because when this all started, Garducci wasn't even a practicing Catholic. It was through the study of the tomb that actually she began practicing her Catholic faith and was drawn into this faith, but that wasn't the motivator of why she would say that these were St. Peter's. Nothing to do with that. The fact that she was a woman was just really Ferrua throwing shade because this was the 1960s and there weren't many females in the field of archaeology and really science at that time. And so just to stop you for for a second, because this stuff is fascinating, but I fear that if we defend too much on, on exactly what was right and what was wrong and how do we know and how do we not know that this season might turn into a a, v- a very long season for us, but I think there's. Are you telling me to just wrap it up here, Matt? Is I, I, that I'm not like saying a... I, I'm not saying that, <laughs> okay. Andrew. But but there is some some resources that you use that somebody yeah. who wanted to to look up yeah. all this and, and find this fascinating yeah. can go a lot deeper. Great point. So there's two really great books. There's Bones of St. Peter, which was written by Margarita Garducci. I mean, go read that. It's a very technical read, but it explains all of this. And then there's, of course, the source that we use, Fisherman's Tomb by John O'Neill, which is a fantastic book. It's very fun to read. And he's got 185 pages to go into more detail about some of this stuff. Yeah, I definitely recommend going and checking those out. So Ferua attacks Garducci, right, and really rallies the scientific community around that. That being said, Paul VI in 1968 does publicly say that we can consider convincing that these bones are the bones of St. Peter. 
They take the bones, they put them into a niche, they put them behind glass. So they're part of the tour if you go down into the necropolis. 1969, we lose the hero of our story, who we'll talk about again next episode. But George Drake passes away in 1969 while he's driving from Columbus, Texas, back to Houston. His car breaks down, and this man of immeasurable wealth decides that he doesn't want to inconvenience anybody else literally gets out of his car and starts pushing it up a hill, has a heart attack and passes away. So we lose our hero, but his legacy continues, and we'll talk more about that next episode. 1978, Pope Paul VI dies, and immediately, you can guess, Garducci is fired. At this time, they actually remove the bones. The Vatican overrules Pius, said that he was misleaded by a radical zealot woman, and it goes back into mystery that they found St. Peter's bones. Really kind of crazy turn of events here in 1978. So why do you think that Ferua staged such an aggressive fight to get Gorducci kind of disproven? I would hate to think that it's just because he's hurt that she got the job over him, right? But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that that seemed to be kind of the catalyst that he really rallied around somebody saying he was wrong and somebody else saying that she was more qualified than him. There's two sides to every story, right? And it's hard to really understand why. But, you know, I mean, from Ferua's standpoint, you know, going back to Koss, he would sneak in at night and pick up all these bones that they found and pick up these things that they skipped over and take them into storage. You know, and so that's Koss saying that Ferua did a bad job. Well, <laughs> that you know, from Ferua's standpoint... Cost is kind of a meddler who's coming in and doing the work that they were planning on doing and just getting in the way, right? So you got to imagine that Ferua is upset with Garducci, but also, you know, in his mind, it's justifiable. I don't know. You guys have any other thoughts? You know, I have a question, you know, and I don't want to defend Ferua because looking at the science, it's undoubtedly, in my opinion, that Garducci's right, Ferua's wrong. But I wonder in this situation if he was so convinced, I, I keep coming back to that, that he was so convinced before Garducci even came in that he found the bones, that no matter what anybody else said, he was just unwavering in his belief that he had already found them, that yeah. there's nothing else. And so maybe it was an ill intent. I'm going to go out on a limb there. Maybe it wasn't ill intent against Garducci, but maybe it was more the fact that he just couldn't be dissuaded from this thought that he was the one who found it and those were the bones. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to give him the more charitable benefit of the doubt like you, but I, my reading of it is that I can't quite do that. The whole process, it feels like he is searching for glory, right? Like from the beginning, he pushes Koss out of the way and says, even though Koss is in charge of the project, he doesn't really let him into the excavation. He's leading the excavation. He doesn't give him reports. He's not telling yeah. him what they're doing. He's mm-hmm. not even allowed on the site during the day in, in most cases. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just a charge to where approximately where they think the bones will be. We find some bones. These are it. I'm the winner. This is the trophy. Anybody who says otherwise, I'm going to tear down and hold a grudge against Mm -hmm. for the next decades and decades, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the eight points of confirmation that Garducci and Carinci had, really, from Ferua's standpoint, on the red wall bones, he had one point of confirmation. And it was, well, they're in the spot that we thought that they were going to be, right? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. So... Garducci's fired, mm-hmm. but it seems like she's almost in the prime of her research. What does she do next? Yeah, so like I said, she's the unsinkable Italian Molly Brown. She just puts her heads down, finds more projects, and keeps working. One of the greatest icons of Poland is 
the icon of Our Lady of Chesachawa, which is commonly known as the Black Madonna of Chesachawa. This is something that has been associated with Poland for the last 600 years, but nobody knew the origin. Nobody knew where this icon originally came from. And it was Garducci who used all the clues and used all of her intelligence and all of her experience to really ultimately identify where the origin of the Black Madonna of Chesachawa is and really kind of bring a lot of honor to that icon and to the Polish Catholic Church. If you're wondering kind of how important this is, many Polish Catholics make a pilgrimage there every year. And when Pope John Paul II was a student during World War II, he actually made a secret pilgrimage to see the Black Madonna, which just shows kind of how important it was. He was willing to risk his life. So that was in 1990. Also in 1990, Margarita Garducci is invited to speak at the University of Milan, and she's there discussing all sorts of things, but Federico Ziri, who is an Italian expert on antiquities, is there as kind of the host moderator of the event. And at that presentation at the university, Garducci kind of like just lays it all out there and lets Ferrua have it. And, you know, this is 1990, so she's been, this is you know 12 years after she was fired, many years after Pope Pius confirmed that these are the right things. And she's kind of been like pushed to the side and really disregarded by certainly the Catholic archaeology community. But she lays it all out there. She makes her case for why these are the right bones. And Frederico Ziri, who has really no skin in the game, says, you know, I think you're right. Publicly, he says it on stage. I think you're right. Margarita Garducci, I think you found the bones of St. Peter. So 1999, Garducci dies. 2003, Ferrua dies at the age of 102 years old, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Say what you will about Ferua, but that dude was a workhorse. He worked until he was 90 years old in the Vatican and never really gave up the fight to find and track the mysteries and, you know, sort of the stories and the relics of, of the church. So Ferua dies in 2003. In 2009, something else happens that isn't necessarily connected with the story, but it paves the way. Pope Benedict confirms the authentic remains of St. Paul that were found in the tomb under St. John Lateran. So what Pope Benedict says is, this confirms the unanimous and uncontested tradition that these are the mortal remains of the Apostle Paul. So again, we've got kind of two main leaders of the church from, you know, all the way back in the first century, Peter and Paul. And it wasn't until 2009 that they recognized that they had the right bones of St. Paul. And then in 2013, remember, we started this whole story off with Pope Francis coming out to the Logia and cradling a box of bone fragments. Well, that is where we are now. Pope Francis finally recognizes these are the bones of St. Peter, our first pope, the rock upon whom the church is built and he returns these bone fragments to the graffiti wall niche where they were originally found. So you're saying that both the remains of Paul and Peter were confirmed and publicly declared in 2009 and 2013. Sounds like that would have been an exciting time to be alive and be Catholic and there'd be lots of excitement about it. And we all were alive. <laughs> Did any of you hear about any of this? And, and we were adults. It wasn't like we were little kids to forget it. Practicing Catholics. Should, should we be like horribly embarrassed or like I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty wild, though. I will say 
that as a result of taking this project on, though, reading the fisherman's tomb, going into research about this, uh, about these people, about George Strake, of course, but now about Ferua and Garducci and Koss and Pius the Sixth or Pius the Twelfth and Paul the Sixth, I cannot believe that this is not a Hollywood movie. Like I, I genuinely can't. There are so many twists and turns and amazing characters and people and storylines. Like this is a ready-made movie, and so hopefully at some point that happens. And if it does, I hope we get to see it. That it's advertised a little more than the actual findings were. Oh, what if we're brought in as like uh, advisors on the project? You hey, know, and... that's a great idea. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Reach out to services. us Instagram. So if you <laughs> if you own <laughs> if you own a, a movie production company and you're thinking about writing a story about this. Give us a call. Holy Donors team would love to help you out. Okay, so you're right, Matt, and you're right, Ren, but there was a news story, so let's listen to the clip. And at the Vatican, a first for the faithful bones believed to be those of St. Peter displayed publicly for the first time. Pope Francis held the remains at Sunday service. The mass at which they were displayed for the first time marked the end of the year of the faith. One reason they were kept hidden for so long is an ongoing debate over whether or not the bones really are St. Peter's. Scientific tests conducted on the nine bone fragments, now resting in a jewel box inside a bronze case, showed only that they belonged to a robust man who died in his 60s. No pope has definitively declared that they do belong to St. Peter, but in 1968, Pope Paul VI said they had been identified in a way we believe to be convincing. So we just heard this fantastic tale uh, that we, you know, would make a great movie, funded by an amazing man who has done amazing things. He was amazing. And he wanted nothing in return. He didn't want any recognition. He wanted nothing in return. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to accomplish and make it to the finish line, which was to find Peter's bones, Mm -hmm. which were later confirmed after his death. Would you consider... The finding of Peter's bone in this this journey maybe the greatest legacy that of George, George yeah of George Strait yeah so so that's a good question I think it's a fair question I would say that these were part of his legacy that we're going to talk more about in the next episode can't wait okay good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. Does your nonprofit organization need to raise more money? Work with the leading teach to fish consulting firm Petrus Development. Check us out at PetrusDevelopment.com. I'm impressed you said um, what if you said epigraphist correctly and you said Garducci correctly. <laughs> are you are you starting to catch on that I um sometimes struggle pronouncing words? <laughs> no. So mm. Okay. Sorry, well, I just put in a Werther's. I, th- I figured I had another, <laughs> another five or six minutes. minutes. What did it say? <laughs> we have to come back next episode. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm just messing.